Welcome to Reframed, a podcast created to educate, encourage, and inspire parents and professionals. The research is clear. Parenting a child that has a history of loss, abuse, neglect, or trauma requires parenting skills and insight to be reframed. We partner with child welfare experts to bring you evidence-based and research-driven information. Reframed host, Emily Moorhead, LPC, and guests strive to make an impact on our world by creating conversations about topics that are important to you, your family, and our communities. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Reframed. My name is Emily Moorhead, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined with my colleague, Lindsay Garrett. Lindsay, tell me about yourself. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been at Gladney for about eight years, and I work in our post-adoption department. So primarily, I work with families who adopt from foster care after they finalize their adoptions, and uh, I work with them on behaviors that may come up with their kids, help finding resources and supports and, you know, just generally tackling things that may come up with their adoption. Lindsay, you've been instrumental in my journey of motherhood and understanding self-care and how to take care of myself um, during the highs and lows. And so one of the things that you taught me about was actually shark music, which is, I feel like we need some actual shark music to begin this conversation, but tell me what it is and why it's important for us to understand as parents. Yes. Um, so shark music is one of my favorite things to talk about because I feel like so much of the um, ideas that we talk about with parenthood are abstract and it kind of makes an abstract idea very concrete. Um, so it is a concept created from circle security, which does a lot of attachment uh, research and work. Um, and it is named after, you know, the music from Jaws, the actual music that plays when the shark comes. Um, and it's basically when we encounter a situation where our brains are telling us that a behavior or an interaction with another human isn't safe. Um, it is usually linked to something we experienced in our very early childhood. Um, and it's ingrained in our brains and our bodies. So a lot of the time it's completely subconscious and we can't control that reaction. It just happens. Um, so shark music is actually something that is useful when we were little because we were protecting ourselves from something that was hurtful. Um, but for a lot of us, we've carried it on into our adulthood and we're reacting it to it the same way often when we experience something similar with our kids. Uh, and in those cases, as adults, we don't need to protect ourselves from that anymore. Um, shark music, I think, also can be um, from something we might experience as a parent or as an adult. For example, if we, you know, if one of our kids climbs a tree and falls out and breaks their leg, then like we're going to be kind of anxious and cautious about our kids climbing trees from then on because of that experience that we had. So. Um, it can be something that happened to us when we, were, when we were a child or even just an experience we've had as a parent. So when we're thinking about, I think anytime we ask adults to go back to their childhood and understand the roots, there's some intimidation there. It's scary, it's vulnerable, and it requires a lot of work. So why should people do that? Why should people desire to understand their shark music? How does it help them in parenting? So I think... I'm going to speak for parents in general, <laughs> that most of us 
want to do better with our kids than our parents did with us. Like we're always striving to do better, whether that's, you know, there's no research out that didn't exist when we were kids that had taught us something different about safety or interactions or discipline or parenting, or, you know, because we had negative experiences as a child and we don't want our child to experience that same thing. So recognizing our own sharp music is a really key part in making sure we don't pass on the same things to our kids that our parents did with us. So, you know, for example, if we had a parent who saw, you know, tears or crying as weakness and told us to suck it up every time we cried or were upset, then we're going to have a gut reaction to that in our child. And if we don't recognize it, we're going to end up repeating that same behavior. Um, and if our goal with our child is to teach them how to accept emotions and be vulnerable, then that's not going to be very useful towards our goal. Um, if we're not able to recognize that reaction, it's Recognizing our sharp music is also really the first step to regulating ourselves. If we can't tell that something is happening that's triggering us, then we can't address it. And it kind of takes over um, our bodies and brings us back to what we call our gut parenting. So talk to me about parenting from the gut. What does that look like? How do we know we're doing it? Yeah, um, if you open your mouth and your mom or dad comes out, <laughs> It's you happening. know you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so parenting from the gut, um, really, we all have a uh, parenting style and we all have an attachment style. Uh, and that is based on how our parents interacted with us. Uh, for most of us, the only intimate parent relationship we have is with our own parents and we do what we know. Um, so we can, I know Emily, you and I are both big like readers and researchers and we want to try new things. Well, we can learn new things all day long and we can practice them. But when we're under stress um, or we're sleep deprived or, you know, we're hungry or we just had a long day, uh, we're going to go back to our gut because that's what we've seen over and over and over and over and over. Um, that's what's wired in our brains. Um, and it takes a really long time to undo those things. So you have to be aware of them and then con aware of them and then consciously choose to do something different. So when I'm parenting from the gut and I do something and I will and I have and we all will and we all, I mean, it's going to happen. So when I'm parenting from the gut and I react in a way that's hurtful to my child, and I know it's hurtful because I see their little face, and it was hurtful to me when that happened to me as a child. How do we fix that? Um, it's hard to like explain to my child, well, when I fell out of the tree, my mom reacted this way, so now I'm doing this weird thing that I don't understand why I'm doing. Um, how do we explain it to them? How do we ask for forgiveness, or do we? Yes, so um, this is something that we talk about in our trainings called repairing. Um, and really your goal is to repair the connection with your child. So when you have those moments where you mess up and you yell or you, you don't meet their need in a moment um, or you do something that severs that connection, uh, you have to go back and reconnect with them. And repairing is how you do that. Um, this is hard for a lot of parents because um, it's not really what we were taught. 
like when we were kids growing up, um, our parents followed more of um, the behavioral model of parenting because that's what was really common at the time. Um, and that really discourages, you know, apologies or admitting that you made a mistake as a parent. Um, there's this uh, perceived loss of power in admitting that you made a mistake or that you didn't do something how you wanted it to go. Um, but not only does the research now on connected parenting disprove that, that you're not actually giving away your power. Um, I think that mindset also tends to create a lot of pressure on parents, because if I have to look like I know what I'm doing all the time and be right all the time, that is a lot of pressure because we're not right all the time and we don't know what we're doing <laughs> most of the time. Um, so um, when we mess up as parents and then we go back and apologize and repair that relationship with our child, we actually accomplish two things. One, um, we model for our child that it's okay to make mistakes, that we are also human. Um, and so they are human and it's okay for them to make mistakes. Um, and two, it actually strengthens, strengthens our connection with them more than if we had never messed up in the first place. Uh, so for parents that have a hard time wrapping their brains around this, I'd like to uh, kind of reframe it of thinking about their relationship, you know, with like their spouse or maybe their best friend or, you know, a very significant intimate relationship in their life. Think about if every time you think about Emily, if every time you had a conflict or, you know, blew up at your husband, if you never went back and resolved that. You know, exactly what was that? Well. Yeah. <laughs> what would that do to your relationship to have okay. all of these, you know, unaired conflicts just being between you? And the same applies to our children, even though we don't naturally think of it that way often as parents. Marshall Lyles came on and completely blew my mind. And I think about it every single day in my parenting. But he said there's this 70 30 rule. And basically, our goal is to get it right 30% of the time. And then the rest is repairing the relationship and reconciling it and just working towards teaching our children that, like, we are trying and we are human, but we are not perfect. What do you think about that? Well, I personally, I really love it as a parent. Um, I am a person that struggles with perfectionism. Um, so seeing that, like, the research the actual scientific research says that for secure attachment, I only have to get it right 30% of the time. It just takes the pressure off of me. Um, you know, on, to be perfectly honest, I think like I'm going to shoot for 50 because I'm overachieving because that's the type of person I am. But to hear like 30 is so low to get it right. Um, but I'm also a parent who's pretty comfortable repairing. So I think if you struggle with the concept of repairing that connection or admitting that you've made a mistake or messed up, I think um, that could also be something that you don't love because that 70, that 70 percent where you're not getting it right, you're going back and repairing. I think that's a good point. If your shark music is recognizing and and admitting fault, that that could be a really triggering experience. I hadn't thought about it that way. I think that's a really good point. What do we do when we're under immense stress when we're, we're parenting? So a death in the family occurs, maybe um, 
you know, we have just adopted a child and so there's this whole new family dynamic. Maybe we got in a car wreck last week and we're having, you know, we're feeling a little shaken up. What do we do when we're under that stress and how do we just bring more awareness to those moments? Um, I think if you're in those situations as parents, um, I would call that being in survival mode as a family. So like we talk about survival mode with our kids a lot, um, that that's a lot of times where their brains are functioning, functioning from. But I think we also can be in survival mode as a family unit um, where we're just running on fumes and we're just trying to make it through the day. Um, so one of, um, the things I heard about recently, um, I don't know, Emily, if you've listened to Brene Brown's new podcast. I have. I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Yes, me too. So, um, she talked about on one of her early episodes, um, a thing that her family does called a family gap plan. Um, and the first step of it is they actually communicate in her family about how much capacity they have at a given time. So, you know, if we've had a death in the family, if, you know, my parent has died that I'm very close to, I might be at like 10% capacity because I'm just knee deep in grief. You know, I may not even be able to get out of bed. Um, but my husband might be at like 60%. Um, so like he's doing a lot better than I am, but 60% plus 10% is still only 70%. So we're not up to functioning at 100% level. Um, so she talks about when the capacity does up to 100%, they enact their family gap plan to fill in that gap to get to 100 um, So I think she talks about um, this is something that they like sat down with their kids and laid out of like, what do we need during these times? Um, so theirs includes things like no using harsh words with each other and, um, you know, telling each other more knock-knock jokes, I think, to create some more, like, levity and laughter. Um, but I think that's something that all families could personalize for themselves. Um, it might be everyone gets eight hours of sleep every night, or we all go outside every day, even if it's just for a couple of minutes. Um or, you know, maybe we cut down on all of the extra activities that we do for a while um, until we feel like we've got a handle on things and we can pick those back up again. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Whatever you decide that your family needs to survive, focus on those things and then, you know, give yourself permission to set aside everything else until you get to a place where you can be at a higher capacity and you can tackle those things again. I love that. One of the things that we don't hear about in the adoption community as much as I believe we should is when we're at capacity and we're overflowing capacity, right? Like what are some of those red flags we should be looking at as parents, um, whether you're adoptive parents or not? And what should we be looking for as kind of red flags that maybe our functioning isn't quite right and we might need to be seeking some help? Yes. Um, So I think this applies probably to all parents, but definitely in the adoption world, um, you know, you're going to look at things like feeling burnt out, um, chronically feeling overwhelmed or fatigued, um, feeling totally hopeless about whatever situation you're in, um, constant anxiety or pervasive thoughts, um, feeling a lot of shame. 
I think for a lot of women, uncontrollable anger or rage is a symptom um, that we don't often think about. Um, losing compassion for your child or, you know, for your spouse or anyone else in your family or for yourself. <laughs> um, a big one a, that um, parents will sometimes talk about, but we don't often hear about because I think there is a lot of shame around it is feeling regretful feeling like maybe you've made a mistake, um, that maybe you shouldn't have brought this child into your home. Um, and then a general like lack of attachment with your child. So I do want to normalize, like you're probably going to feel several of those things <laughs> like at some point or another, like, you know, I don't know one parent that doesn't feel guilt at some point or, you know, is anxious about stuff. It's when you're experiencing those things over a period of time and they're not going away. You know, they're not just fleeting feelings or just having a bad day. It's constant and it's lasting for a long time is when you're going to want to seek help from a mental health professional. Yeah. And I would say even just interfering with daily functioning, um, whether that is just parenting or whether that's getting out of bed to go to work, um, but any kind of interference in daily functioning is always something we just want to spark curiosity about and wonder if maybe getting a little bit more help could be helpful. Yes. And this can happen to either, you know, with adoption, it can happen to either parent. I think we have, um, you have, we have it in our heads that, um, this is something that mostly mothers go through, which I think comes from like the birth community. Um, with post-adoption, I'm sorry, post, postpartum mood disorders. Um, but either parent can experience these things. Yeah, and we're actually seeing diagnosis of, you know, post-adoption depression. We normally just talked about that with women who had experienced pregnancy, but we're actually seeing biological chemical changes in a woman or a man's brain after adoption. Um, and that's something that's not really talked about or even um, shared with the adoption community. Mm -hmm. So Lindsay, when parents are adopting a child who may have a trauma history, obviously before the adoption, their most cases are able to read the child's file, um, which includes some, some really hard things to read. Um, when they're parenting a child from a hard place, their child has hard things in their story that as they feel safe, they start to disclose. Talk to me about what parents should be looking for in themselves during these times. Yes. So uh, there's a term called secondary trauma, which is um, when you experience, you know, symptoms of PTSD, basically as a reaction to hearing about trauma. Um, so PTSD is when you primarily experience trauma yourself, but secondary trauma is when you, you know, you hear about it from someone else. And I think for parents who are adopting children with trauma, um, this can be really impactful because this child that you already love and want to protect and have all of those gut parenting protective instincts for is often telling you about something horrific that happened to them that if you have been able to prevent it, you never would have allowed to happen to your child. Um, so it can bring up a lot of feelings for you. You know, I've had parents have a lot of anger towards whoever hurt their child. I've had parents who have felt like guilt or sadness over not being able to protect them because that's what we're supposed to do as parents. Um, and I, for those of us who maybe um, have not experienced something like that, uh, it can be really shocking to hear about some of the terrible things that have happened to our child. And honestly, I think it 
it's even harder when you hear it coming out of the voice of, you know, your precious eight-year-old. Like, you, it just doesn't compute in our brains. Um, so having the space to process that is really important. Um, so whether that's with, you know, your partner or with a close friend or with a therapist, um, processing that um, Trump, those traumatic things that you're hearing from your child is important so that you're not just carrying that with you. I've heard a lot of families share that they were scared to reach out. Um, even sometimes families, when they do reach out, they say, I don't know if I should have told you this, that I'm feeling this way. Um, sometimes they're scared to seek help because they're worried, you know, the the agency will think they're not the right fit for this child, or maybe they'll doubt them as a parent, you know, a good mom or a good dad. Um, what advice would you have for families who are scared to reach out for help? Yes. So first I want to validate that that's a very real fear. Um, and it makes complete sense, especially in the world of adoption. You know, you start this process having to jump through all of these hoops. You know, you have to fill out all this paperwork and meet all these qualifications and go through a home study assessment and basically like prove that you're qualified to do this. Um, so then when you get to the end and you're struggling, um, I think it's very valid that you don't want to admit I'm having a hard time because you spent all of this energy proving that you could do this. Um, so that fear is very valid. Um, and then generally in our society, there's so much judgment for parents coming from all sides. So I think it makes complete sense that people would hesitate to reach out uh, because, you know, to admit that we don't know what we're doing as parents or that we think we messed something up is to kind of invite backlash and potential shame. Um, so it's very vulnerable to do that. Um, but I would say my first suggestion is to reach out when things start to get hard. So I think often, um, especially those of us that value like independence and, you know, like to think of us as like strong, capable people, <laughs> um, we wait until we can't take it anymore. And we're at the end of our ropes. I'm totally guilty of doing this. Um, you know, I wait until my capacity is at zero before I ask for help. Cause I keep thinking it's okay. I'm like, I'm not at zero. I can still handle this. I can still hang in there. And then by the time I ask for help, I'm, I'm way, way deep and it's hard to come out of it. Um, so asking for help when it starts to get hard, asking for support with smaller issues or challenges rather than waiting until they become a bigger challenge or even a crisis um, and are harder to come back from would be my first um, thing that I would advise families to do. And then I would also suggest that you reach out to someone you trust. I mean, we all know the people that are gonna judge us as parents um, for the most part. Like, I'm not gonna post something very vulnerable that I'm having a challenge with as a mom in a Facebook group. Like that's just inviting everyone's opinion that I don't need. Um, you know, I'm gonna reach out to a friend that I'm close to and I know isn't going to shame me or, um, you know, my sister or my therapist, you know, choose carefully who you share with at first, especially if you know that it's going to be a hard conversation for you. Um, choose someone that you know is going to be empathetic and isn't going to judge you and then let that person help you make a plan moving forward. Um, so that is often where I'm going to plug Gladney Post Adoption. <laughs> 
Yeah, plug it. Uh, that is where post-adoption comes in. Like that's our entire job is when you're struggling, you call us. We are not here to judge you. We are here to help support your family, whatever that looks like. Um, and often I would say most of the time just unloading whatever's going on can be such a weight lifted for parents. So Lizzie, I know that some people who may be listening today aren't Gladney families um, or aren't even an adoptive family. So reaching out, um, who could they reach out to if they were in the trenches? Yeah, so one of my favorite resources that I've referred some of our families to, um, but they work with all different kinds of adoptive families, um, is called Chosen Care. Um, they're focused on you know, supporting adoptive and foster parents and like maintaining, keeping families together after adoption. Um, they do like parent coaching, virtual parent coaching. So it doesn't matter where you live. Um, and they have support groups. They focus on like peer mentoring programs. And like that is the one thing that they do. Um, so they've really been able to dive deep into that area of adoption support. And I know for any family, you know, we've talked and plugged psychology today several times on this podcast because it's a great avenue for someone to find a therapist that may specialize um, in this specific issue. Um, And it's a really easy website. So we'll definitely link that for our viewers today so they can leave this podcast and, and feel hope in the fact that there are rich resources out there for them. Lindsay, why would you classify all of these conversations as self-care for parents? Because I think sometimes when we think about self-care, we think about nails and massages. So why is this different than what nails and massages are? Yes. So you're right. You know, we think about self-care or we read about self-care because it's a very popular thing to talk about right now. And um, a lot of the things we read about might be more superficial, like, um, you know, pampering yourself or taking a full day off or, Um, you know, getting a pedicure or a bubble bath or whatever. Uh, But self-care, I think, especially for parents, goes so much deeper than that. You know, it's the things that rejuvenate you um, and not only, you know, your body or your energy, but also like rejuvenate you on a soul level. Um, so if you're, you know, carrying around these heavy things or these struggles or these weights from your own childhood, that is affecting you day to day. And so like, it truly is self-care to do that work for yourself as a parent so that you can be the best parent that you can be for your child. Um, you know, it's that we talk about all the time. It's that oxygen mask, (laughs) that like we have to do our own work as parents before we can do it with our children. I think it's hard because when we become parents, we want to read all these books about how to shape our child and help them, you know, be the best of their ability, but it requires us to do that first. And it's, it's pouring into ourselves. And as we create a self-care plan, kind of asking ourselves, like, what do we need to feel mothered um, or parented or soothed in that way while we're pouring out of our cup in those things. Lindsay, what would you advise for parents um, to do when they're creating a self-care plan? Um, I would advise them to first really know themselves. So in order to, um, if we're talking about like practical self-care, if you don't know what works for you, you can be spinning the wheels 
you know, doing something that's not rejuvenating you at all. So um, using myself as an example, you know, I actually know a lot of people that love to take baths. That's very relaxing and soothes their stress. Personally, that is not something that works for me. So for me, um, you know, moving my body is really so I will go for a walk or go for a run or do yoga or whatever. That's really regulating for me. So when I'm having a hard day or I feel myself getting off and losing my patience more, that's usually my go-to of like, oh, I need to move my body more. Um, so knowing what works for you. If you are not an exercise person, like don't try to be one. <laughs> that's not who you are. Um, but maybe think about like, what is it about that, that you're drawn to? Maybe you picture yourself, you know, running on trails outside and that's what you're envisioning. You can still do the outside part of that without doing the running. Um, so that kind of segues into, it has to be realistic. Like it has to work for you and it has to be realistic. Um, so knowing that it's something you're going to do. Um, and then you also have to build it into your routine. Um, I think often we think about self-care as this like special thing we do for ourselves. Sometimes, you know, we take a day off from work and we have a spa day or we go on vacation, which like those are great things to do. But most of us don't have time to do that in our day to day. And we need to be refilling our cups daily. So, you know, finding what works in your routine. Maybe it's spending five minutes journaling before you go to bed or, um, I actually really like doing five minutes of meditation before bed and five minutes is about all I can do. I've tried to do more and I just won't do it. So like, that's my realistic, um, you know, or, you know, getting up 15 minutes before your kids do to have a cup of coffee by yourself in the morning, whatever you can build into your routine. I love that. And I think that it's, it's not what we're thinking about with mainstream self-care, but it's, I like the idea of creating a plan that's sustainable and maintainable for you as a person. Um, and it doesn't have to look how, you know, everyone references it as self-care. Oh, there is also when we're talking about, you know, survival mode, there is, I cannot remember where I heard it from. I'll have to go back and look it up so that you can put it in the show notes, but, um, there is a type of self-care, uh, called bare minimum self-care that um, one parenting expert talks about um, where she says you bring this in when it's survival mode. So it's like the littlest, tiniest thing you could do to make you feel like you're prioritizing yourself. Um, so maybe that's picking your favorite coffee cup in the morning, even if like the rest of the day you get nothing, like you got to have your favorite cup or um, listening to the music you want on the radio or lighting a candle while you're trying to homeschool your kids, but you know, you're doing this thing that's really draining and takes a lot out of you, but at least you get to smell this candle that you like things that take a split second and you can still fit them in your day, even when things are really, really hard. Thank you, Lindsay, for creating this conversation and safe space to process um, our own history and how we can help take care of ourselves so we can do a good job taking care of our little ones. All of the resources that you referenced today, we will link in our show notes, um, as well as some tips and tricks on how to create a maintainable self-care plan. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Reframed. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to Reframed. 
visit gladneyuniversity.org to access the show notes and learn about upcoming trainings at Gladney University. We'd love your feedback, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.